This is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. of All Marine Radio. Are you that person? Are you a Friday the 13th? Are you a Friday the 13th person? Salt over the shoulder. All of that. God forbid you see a black cat today. <clears throat> Somebody sent me an email. Mac, are you anywhere near those fires? Uh, I'm kind of close to it. I mean, I can see the smoke. And uh, I was out walking the Puppy Brothers the day before yesterday. And I saw the smoke and I was like, whoa, that's a big fire. Don't know where it is. Don't know what it is. And uh, as you've seen in other places around the country, Californians have a penchant for Wanting to live in beautiful places that are remote. And California, environmental law evolving to what it has, you cannot, right? You cannot thin the natural fauna of California. And a fire hurricane starts in a canyon. This one, it looks to be precipitated. It's, I saw a story here. Um that said, Southern California Edison said that there was a electrical event in the area shortly before the fire. What in the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what? Uh, uh, uh. There was an electrical event? What does that mean? Sp- speak the English to us. Does that mean one of your transformers exploded, igniting this fire? Allegedly. I don't know. Um, So, yeah. But the problem is, when you put all that concoction together, and a fire hurricane starts, it eats everything. And so, yeah. So, when people ask me, like, is that fire anywhere near you? Uh, No. When you have as much concrete and asphalt around you as I do, yeah, I live in a in a middle class suburb of Southern California, Costa Mesa. 
adjacent to Irvine and Newport Beach. And a very nice place. But they tend to be uh, middle-class homes that were built. And people have, uh, you know, taken them and fixed them up and pumped a lot of money in. The average home price around me is between probably 800000 and a million dollars. And they're tracked homes. Yeah. So anyway, but a lot of concrete and a lot of asphalt. So fire's coming nowhere near me. Well, anyway, on this uh, Friday the 13th, the Yankees annihilated uh, the White Sox last night. But it was a close game. So let me give you, let me tell you what pisses me the fuck off when I watch baseball. Stupid shit. Okay. So these guys are, these guys are in the fucking big leagues. O two, let, let O two pitch. Now you're supposed to bounce this, throw it out of the strike zone someplace, throw it right down the chute and watch the guy hit a home run. Or we just scored four runs to go up, right? Game was tied. We score four runs. Guy comes out. What's the first thing he does? Walks the leadoff hitter. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, what are we fucking doing? This shit drives me fucking crazy. Okay? And I got raised. I got raised by my father in playing sports. There's, uh, you can make physical mistakes. You're going to miss balls, right? You're going to strike out. You're going to, I mean, that stuff's hard. And it happens. Physical mistakes happens. Metal mistakes, No. Okay, it should not be too much to expect from you that while you're out there, you have your head out of your ass and in the game and you're thinking about what you're supposed to do. It's just, I mean, you watch it. These guys are getting paid millions of dollars, most of them. It's a good life. And, yeah, that drives me nuts. My Kings lost in regulation in Los Angeles in a game where they could have closed the series out. So now they go back up to Edmonton. And uh, game seven, NHL first round. I, I want to say out of the eight series, seven of them are going to game seven, I think, something like that. So game seven, come on, man. Nothing like it. Um, Friday the 13th. I'm not, I'm not a superstitious person. Um, only relative to sports am I superstitious. I told you one of mine. When like you have something you're supposed to do, if you postpone it, you will jinx your sports team. I don't ask me why. I don't know. I don't understand it. It's just the way it is. So I was making my bed the other night when the Kings scored in overtime, and that was my own act of devotion to the process. So um, that my uh, one of our, my listeners. And uh, post-traumatic winning guy is a guy named George Mendoza. He's a blacksmith. Yeah, he's a blacksmith, among other things he does. That's not his primary job. That's his wannabe job. But he's become a blacksmith and a woodworker. And he sent me bottle openers. And it's a piece of bent rebarb. So it's rebarb that he bent over something. And then he took the, uh, the end, so he snipped it. And so it would fit nicely in your hand, and you could open, I assume, beer bottles with it, for those of you who drink such things. Um, and then the other side is, I don't know, it looks like it, you, you would use it as a lever to pry stuff. But 
He gave me three of them. I gave one to each one of my daughters because if you put it in your hand and you and you punch somebody with this thing, you will you fuck them up. But it's it's you know it's a piece of rebarb steel, so I I, I it fits nicely into a into a purse. <laughs> so I told my daughters, put this in your purse. Anybody fucks with you, punch them in the head. You'll put a hole in their head. So I need to thank George for helping to promote self defense. Defense of the last resort for my daughters. Um, so that's going on. Uh, let me tell you about what, what we're going to do today. I might look at a couple of news headlines. Um, I, have to, I have to go through some stories that I've read here in the last 24 hours, um, whether they're in the news or not. Um, I read an analysis piece of the sinking of the Moscova, right? And so there, there was... Sp- Pictures circulated on the internet by the ship Russian that came to it. Yeah, one of those geniuses posted <laughs> posted pictures on the internet. I mean, because you have to, right? Oh, you know, oh man, look at this. A ship sinking. Everybody's got to see this. Mm-hmm. There might be some operational security shit you might want to consider there, Vladimir. But anyway, Sergey. So somebody starts analyzing this picture and the air defense radars are in the stowed position. What? What did you say, Mac? So it's in missile range and yeah, you heard me right. So that's the guy's chief point in this analysis paper. The... Radar detecting radars that would detect incoming missiles, blah, 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 right? They're in the stowed position. Hmm. I'm not sure what to say, right? What do you say? That's in the news. Um, <clears throat> what you're going to hear today, the Mensa brothers join me. Will d- did not show up. He was a no-show again. Normally, he's got a good reason, but he'll have to explain it to me. Yeah, when he hands in his note for being absent. Um, but anyway, it's an interesting thing. So, what we're going to talk about is an article written a couple months ago, and it's written. It's in the New Yorker, written by a guy named David Remnick. Now, let me see if they give David Remnick's background here. Who is David Remnick? Other than a writer for The New Yorker. Does it say? It does not. Anyway, he interviews a Russian expert. Stephen Kotkin is one of our most profound and prestigious scholars of Russian history. His masterwork is a biography of Joseph Stalin. So far, he's published two volumes, The Paradoxes of Power, 1878 to 1928, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and Waiting for Hitler, 1929 to 1941. A third volume will take the story through the Second World War, Stalin's death in 1953, and the totalitarian legacy that shaped the remainder of the Soviet experience. 
taking advantage of long forbidden archives in Moscow and beyond, Kotkin has written a biography of Stalin that surpasses those by Isaac Dusher, Robert Conquest, and Robert C. Tucker, and countless others. Kotkin has a distinguished reputation as in academic circles. He is a professor of history at Princeton University, a senior fellow at the senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He has myriad sources in various realms of contemporary Russia, government, business, culture. Both principled and pragmatic, he also he is also more plugged in than any reporter or analyst I know. Ever since we met in Moscow, Moscow many years ago, Kotkin was doing research on the Stalinist industry city of Magnitorsk. I found his guidance on everything from the structure of the Putin regime to its roots in Russian history to be invaluable. So this, so then there's a piece, and um, the, now if you want to, if you're bored and you want something to read right now, uh, it's called the weakness of the despot. You spell that D E S P O T. It's written by David Remnick, R E M N I C K. And I printed it out so I could mark it up. It's about nine pages in 11 font. Um, so, but there's about an 18-minute version you can listen to if you're driving today. Yeah. And I would suggest that because it's very well done. A lot of times that stuff is not so well done. Mm-hmm. And um, this one is. So it's very well done and very enjoyable. So I would I would recommend that you listen to that if you're driving. So we're going to take this up. There's a, a, a ton of interesting stuff in the article itself. So uh, I sent it to Jeff and Tim. And uh, so we'll talk about this first, what they found interesting in the article. Uh, and then after that, we're going to talk about an interview that I don't I, somebody sent me. And it is Representative Luria. Again, Elaine Luria, former Naval Academy grad, former former surface warfare officer in the United States Navy. Um, she's talking about the Navy's bad China strategy, right? It, and it is a podcast done by a Naval Academy grad and former Naval officer by the name of Ward Carroll. Okay, you can find it um, on YouTube. Ward Carroll, C-A-R-R-O-L-L. So, yeah. Um, so you can uh, you can do that. And so I, I watched it, sent it to the boys. And so what you'll hear is you'll hear clips of the interview, and then you'll hear us talking about it. But she talks about a disconnect that exists between the things that people say and the way we're operating against the nation's pacing threat, China, in the Western Pacific, and the reality of the budget and how the rhetoric of what we say doesn't match the funding. Okay. And how decisions made in the budget don't match the reality of the Western Pacific. And so you, you listen to her and you will. And, you, and and it leaves you, or me, or anybody, anybody, scratching their head. 
If we're saying these things, why are we doing those things? If we're saying the Navy, right, and this fight that will be a naval and an Air Force fight in the Western Pacific is so significant, why aren't they getting disproportionate increases in the budget? Why is that? So, I mean, she asked very hard questions. She asked hard, sensible questions. She asked them about strategy, and then she asked them about authority. So you'll hear three clips. The first one is shipbuilding and the 2023 budget, right? So that's his first question to her. Another question is about strategy, right? And she she goes into this discussion about John Lehman and going back and watching old hearings. So very interesting stuff. And then uh, the third clip you'll hear is one about authority. Again, if this is our stated, if this is what we're saying, you know, deterrence by denial, you have to have the authority to act, right? Yeah. Well, that would be, so deterrence would mean some kind of preemptive or offensive strike. Right, China masses. We see it. They put begin to put boats in the water. Are we allowed to strike? No. Only Congress can declare war. The president does not have that authority. So she she walks you through that, and so you look at this mosaic and you see strategic ambiguity. Yeah, we haven't said if we'll defend China, Taiwan or not. Hmm. Okay. Yet we have this posture, right? Deterrence by denial. That requires, when would we act? What's the trigger point? And she asked these questions. So you're going to hear her do that. And it's it's very, she's very, you know, again. And so the, then the lament is, why do we have more of this? Why have we not seen a discussion like this about Force Design 2030? Footnotes, all the rest of it. So anyway, um, so you'll hear all of that. And then Tim and Jeff waxing eloquent on all of that. So, uh, good morning to you. United States Marine Corps Band makes, oh, I'm sorry. My apologies, especially to all my friends at 8th and I. And I have them, too. When you've done post-traumatic winning in the Sousa building, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, my apologies. Whitney Houston, it is Friday. She sings the national anthem. Good morning.
And I have to say, this is dedicated to Representative Luria, who once again gets on my radar for asking uh, in what I believe is, this is, if you're sitting on one of these panels, why haven't you done this for Force Design 2030? Why haven't we had, I mean, given the visibility, I mean, unprecedented stuff in Marine Corps history, and nobody sees fit that, that Congress should take a look at it? We're all going to do this on the down low. Hmm. Interesting. I think it's sad. But just dedicated to her. Nice going, Elaine. <laughs> betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win.
That is the sweet voice of Junior Walker and the All-Star. Yeah, all of them. I don't know why my weather sucks now, but it does. Currently, in no particular order, sunny and 68 and 29 Palms. going to be beautiful here in Southern California today. Uh, in Havelock, North, North Carolina, the home of the 2nd Marine Air Wing. That's where Cherry Point is. Partly sunny in 69. In Triangle, Virginia, that is the home of the off-ramp of the Marine Corps. <laughs> Quantico. Cloudy in 66. Better yet, it's the home of the museum. In Kiev, also known as Kiev, it is partly sunny in 69 late in the day there. And here in the Costa Mesa Newport Beach area of Southern California. It is sunny and 65. Looking for a high today of 80 degrees. Tomorrow, 81. Sunday, 73. Monday, 72. Tuesday, 71. Nice. That's exactly the way we like the thermostat set. We don't need any more heat or humidity. Okay? Nobody needs that bullshit. All right. Yeah. Heat and humidity. If that's what you're looking at for the next seven months, I, I, I feel, I genuinely feel bad for you. Okay. I genuinely feel bad for you. Okay. Now, very quickly, it is Friday. So I hate to dwell on the headlines because they always suck. Right. Top story. I didn't even know this is coming. Oh, fuck. Top headline in Stars and Stripes. The Navy is unprepared to fight in two conflicts at once. With current fleet size, the service's top officer tells senators. The current fleet of 298 ships. And you're going to hear Representative Luria say they're taking, it'll go down to, if they have their way, it'll go down to 280 this year. Quote, is not sized to handle two simultaneous conflicts. Admiral Mike Gilday, the chief of naval operations, said during a hearing of the Senate Armed Service Committee. Um, <laughs> I told you. What? Why do I do this? Right? Oh, my God. Here's another. Here's a happier headline. Number of acknowledged U.S. airstrikes around the globe hits a 15-year low. Nice. Good thing we're saving that ordinance so the Ukrainians can shoot it. Um. Let's see. Navy base in Japan places nightclub off limits following reports of illicit activity. Okay. Like you just made that place the number one go to spot for military members. Uh, um a couple of other headlines. USS George Washington suicides raise alarm on Capitol Hill as Defense Secretary limits admits problems with sailor housing. 
you know, I've watched some of this stuff. So this ship's been in dry dock for four years since 2017, going on to five. And they believe, so it's going through its midlife nuclear refueling and, you know, whatever. And again, this is part of the problem why the Navy needs to go into receivership. I mean, it sucks ass at everything. How do you know the Navy sucks? Because they're breathing. This ship, this thing was supposed to take four years. It will take close to six. One of our nuclear-powered carriers is offline for two additional years. What the fuck, man? And so what's customary, I believe, my experience, because my ship had come out of SLEP um, before I got on it, Service Life Extension Program. So... And the Marines that, that were on the ship, a lot of them had joined the ship when it was um, when it was in Philadelphia, in dry dock, undergoing these um, under undergoing this work. Now, my recollection is they lived on the ship. I mean, your ship's company, you live on the ship. You come and go. You're assigned to a ship. Now, we didn't have a barracks out in town or on the base that our Marines lived in. They lived aboard the ship. So anyway, I mean, but you have your car. You have a life. You come and go. It's like a barracks, but it's on a ship. For whatever reason now, that ain't good enough. The little pumpkins, right, can't take the stress of being, and, and again, this ship, it's not like it's been at sea. It's been in fucking port. So you get up in the morning, you do your job, and then you go fuck off. And so I, I saw a woman, there's uh, a, a female Congress member of Congress, or maybe a senator. I, I don't think it was a senator because I, I, I remember senators. Congressmen, there's so many, who fucking knows, right? But she's saying... <clears throat> They don't have cars and what do you mean what do you mean they don't have cars? Of course they do. They're stuck on ship. No, they're not. And they're in a major metropolitan area. Like they have all the illicit nightclubs they can get to on a on a nightly basis. And oh by the way, Uber, right? Lyft, all the other bullshit services. And so uh, and let me sound an alarm for all you parents out there. We're raising the softest human beings in the world. It's only about their feelings. Nobody says no to them. Say no to a kid and watch what happens. I dare you to. Like next time you're waiting for uh, a, a a table at a restaurant, right? And you're kind of loitering in an area. And there's a bunch of kids acting like assholes because there always is. Because that's the way that we do it now. Okay, when one of them starts acting like an asshole near you, look at them and say no, and watch what they do. They'll run away (laughs) and go tell their mom. Right? They certainly won't comply with whatever you tell them to do. And then all of a sudden, they find out that this is not the way the world works. In life, life requires some things that we never talk about. Our parents never talked about them with us our school certainly would never fucking talk about it one is toughness right life's not for pussies yeah take that one to the bank 
you can you don't need to use the p word okay because i know it's somebody you know connects it to somebody's anatomy and then it's like ah like okay i got okay i got it don't you then don't use it then okay we're raising soft human beings who are not ready for the rigors of life and then here's another thing life requires discipline discipline of the self yeah we don't we don't prepare them in any way shape or form for the rigors of life and then we're so surprised when they kill themselves and what happened oh my girlfriend dumped me so you're going to kill yourself why don't you go find another girlfriend one of the fun girls yeah why don't you find one of those yeah that could be your payback girlfriend why are you going to kill yourself i mean it's just ridiculous and so now you know now what's next God only knows. Another article, Taiwan invasion would be a risky move for Chinese leadership, defense experts say. Here's what I would tell you. I have this to say about that. Um, one of the things that I talked, uh, that, that the Mensa brothers and I talked about, when we talked about Ukraine was, um, what do you think Putin would do? will do? Right, He's massed his forces. They've been loitering there on the border. What do you think we'll do? And here's what we said. What he'll do is he will move into areas that he can dominate easily. He won't. So will this go beyond, you know, the Donbass? No. Why? Because he rolls the dice on that. He rolls the dice on his future because he's not going to be able to control that. And one of the things that's interesting in this article that the guy says is the Russians don't have the military ass to do this. The largest and most important consideration is that Russia cannot successfully occupy Ukraine. They do not have the scale of forces. They do not have the number of administrators they need or the cooperation of the population. They don't even have a quizzling yet. Think about all those Ukrainians who would continue to resist. The Nazis came to Kiev in 1940. They grabbed all the luxury hotels, but days later, those hotels started to blow up. They were booby-trapped. If you're an administrator or a military officer in occupied Ukraine and you order a cup of tea, are you going to drink the cup of tea? Do you want to turn on the ignition of your car? Are you going to turn on the light switch in your office? All it takes is a handful of assassinations to unsettle the entire occupation. So, so we talked about, you know, that, that Russia didn't have, I mean, it's a huge roll of dice to do what Vladimir Putin did. And as a statement to one, um, his own tunnel vision of Ukraine as part of Russia, um, it being peeled out of the Soviet Union was one of the most horrible things that has happened in his lifetime. That the Ukrainian people aren't any different than the Russian people. And that he had a military that could do this, that the Ukrainian people would support this move. I mean, you go down the list to check to see how this makes sense. And it's crazy delusional, right? Because it's a huge roll of the dice. Because, let me tell you, 
Um, this is not going to get better for the Russians. There was just an article yesterday circulating on the Internet about the better part of a Russian tank brigade getting smoked by Ukrainian indirect fire and rockets trying to cross a river. You know, so when you, you put a pontoon bridge up, or you put bridging stuff up, and you're trying to cross, at some point you mass to do the crossing, right? Not if you're smart, you don't, but if you're dumb, you do, right? And pff, there's pictures of all these dead tanks there. And so, um, so anyway, we had that discussion. It's a huge roll of dice when you overreach. I think China, if they haven't seen anything, first of all, that's a that's a big straight, right? That's a big straight. And I'll tell you what, and if I was Taiwan, I'd Iwo Jima the shit out of those mountains, right? With anti-ship missiles. I'd open those apertures, poof, I'd fire them. And I'd have a I'd have a gazillion of those things. That thing, a fortress island, you will never take us in a million years. So anyway. And you can bomb the shit out of us. These tunnels will be so deep. And you won't be able to touch us. So anyway, so there you go. I told you the news. Why do I do it? Good question. Wall Street Journal top headline is, Musk says Twitter deal is on hold. This is kind of interesting. Elon Musk said his deal to buy Twitter was on hold, raising questions about the takeover and sending shares of the messaging service lower, but he later added that he remains committed to the acquisition. He said it was on hold because of data that indicated the number of fake accounts and automated accounts, right? Bots and things like that. It'll be, I think it'll be very interesting as Twitter turns over the things Elon Musk has to say about it. And maybe he pulls back the curtain on, yeah, you know, Twitter says it has this. You know what it actually had? It actually had that. Now, will he do that? I don't know. He's not your normal guy. Um, top story in New York Times. Sweden signals it will follow Finland in moving to join NATO. You'll hear me say this. Um You'll hear me say this in the podcast, but think about this. Finland, Sweden, 200 years of neutrality. And um, they are now unafraid of Russia. So I don't know what the classified assessment of what's going on in Russia is, but whatever it is, it says Russia's weak. That's what it says. Because you're seeing all these nations pile ordnance into Ukraine without fear. And now you're seeing Finland saying, hey, we're joining NATO. We don't give a fuck about what you can do anymore. That comes with a very sober assessment. And Sweden does the same thing. Interesting. Interesting. So whatever the classified assessment is, uh, Vladimir Putin, maybe not so long for this world anymore. 
from the Washington Post, top headline, Kiev holds war crimes trial for Russian soldiers. Sweden eyes NATO benefits. And then a headline about Elon Musk's Twitter deal. Um, USNI News, top story today is... Congress wants a potential 15-haul, five-year destroyer deal at three ships a year. Now, again, that makes sense. If you pay attention to this, that makes sense. All right, and you'll hear Representative Luria saying that they could build three destroyers a year. It's the one ship they deliver under on budget and on time. And it would match this window of vulnerability that the United States has vis-a-vis China as expressed as the Davidson window. Yeah. Hold on. Here's a story that I saw yesterday that, again... When, when I talk about the Navy should go into receivership. The Navy cost estimates for modernizing dry docks at its four public shipyards, quote, have been wildly off point. Diana Maurer, the director of defense capabilities at the general accounting office, testified on Tuesday. Now, she's an accountant. Okay. She was referring to the GAO's latest report on the Navy's shipyard infrastructure optimization plan released this week and a 2017 report on the condition of the public yards, layouts, facilities, and workforce. The 2017 report led the service to developing to develop a 20-year optimization plan. Quote, all four of the public facilities are rated poor. We are concerned about that. The cost of the Navy's dry dock projects in the SIOP, I don't know what the hell that is, but it's probably some budget plan. Oh, something operation plan has, according to Navy estimates, grown by over 400 percent, 400 percent since 2018. The GAO report states the Navy estimated in 2018 that its efforts to improve the naval shipyards would require 21 billion over 20 years to implement. However, we reported in 2019 that this $21 billion estimate does not include inflation and other significant costs, such as those for utilities, roads, and environmental remediation, which could add billions to the final cost. What the fuck, man? You read this and you're like, are you shitting me? So anyway. Yeah, no, it's laughable. Yeah, I mean, as if it wasn't so sad. And these are the stewards. These are the stewards of your dollar. Um, top headline, Marine Corps Times. Modern day Marine is going on in Quantico, I think. They were trying to move it to D.C. I, I, I'm not sure where it is. Ukraine war has Marine Corps revamping ID training. Got it. Um, next, um, sad story. 
Vietnam Medal of Honor winner, dies after a decade-long battle with cancer. Retired Marine Sergeant Major John Canley, who received the Medal of Honor in 2018 for his heroic actions, I believe as a company gunner sergeant in Hue City in Vietnam, passed away after a long battle with cancer. So God bless him, and fair winds of following seas to him and uh, and his family. Yeah, Sergeant Major Canley. Um, great story, right? And to include, ultimately, him being awarded the Medal of Honor in 2018. Uh, top five stories in early bird today. Law, lawmakers press the DOD pro, to, to provide troops access to abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Two, the Navy is unprepared to fight in two conflicts at once. With the current fleet size, the service's top officer tells senators. So think about this. I don't know who builds this, right? The abortion story is above the story that says that the Navy can't fight two wars. Whatever. Bases get electric facelift as Marines deploy smart grids and electric vehicles. That's awesome. Next story. Take flight with the Air Force's doomsday plane, the E-4B Nighthawk. Ooh, doomsday. Did you know that toilet paper has been proven to be unhygienic? Oh, God, no. The Arabs were right. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, a, that's some ad that just popped up as I went to... I thought this was a story, and it's not. It's a... The Doomsday Plane, E-4B. I don't know. It looks like a 747 with a bunch of, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's an Air Force thing. So who who understands it? Um, here's another story. The, the fifth one. Navy hush-hush after secret boats unexplained sinking. What? A Navy vessel sank under unclear circumstances at an undisclosed location while testing out some secretive technology last December. And that's about all the Sea Service will say about the subject. Hmm. By Jeff Zazulowitz. The vessel's name and nature of the technology were not disclosed. Though officials did say it took on water and sank... <laughs> <laughs> while it was moored, okay? Moored means it's tied up to the pier. So it sank at the pier. To make matters worse, it happened on December 7th. The craft was immediately recovered and restored. Thank God. <laughs> Make it up, man. You cannot make it up. Overseas headline, Greece, Greece to extend base access deal with the U.S. military. Yeah, American military is like cool now. Um, who would have thought less than a year after getting limping out of Afghanistan? Uh, U.S. leads exercise in NATO's newest member. U.S. troops join forces with Britain, France, Italy, and allied countries in the region Thursday in a military exercise held in NATO's newest member, North Macedonia. 
aimed at displaying deployment readiness along the alliance's eastern border. Next headline, number of acknowledged U.S. airstrikes around the globe hits a 15-year low. That's the second time I've read that. So you know it's time to go, right? Uh, In the Middle East, U.S. general hears concerns about American commitment. U.S. Army General Michael Eric Carrilla, who took over as the head of Central Command last month, is compiling a 90-day assessment of the U.S. military's efforts in the region, once at the core of a foreign policy that's now focused on China, Russia, and the war in Ukraine. And what he's hearing is the region is unsure about American commitment. Hmm. Geez, I wonder why they I wonder why they think that. This is an article in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, and then after you, I just I'll briefly mention this. This is written yesterday. Headline: Ukrainian forces hold the line in Donbass as Western heavy weapons join the battle. With Russia, subheadline: With Russia's failing to achieve a strategic breakthrough, a long and bloody battle for the eastern Ukraine looms. pretty interesting little article about Russia's lack of progress in the region. And again, I mean, we're talking about starting with Russian dominance in the region. And now what you're, you're seeing is, I don't know if I would call it a tidal wave, but you're seeing Western munitions gush into Ukraine. You're seeing Ukrainian forces with confidence of having fought now, understanding the fight, understanding that their adversary ain't all that, right? And now reinforce with more weapons. So stand the fuck by. So we'll see. We'll see. And and again, I, I see people saying that, oh, you know, Russia's winning the conflict. and and But if you look at the map, okay, and again, go to Al Jazeera, the website. They have a map. They have all these different categories of stuff. And, you know, they'll show you kind of what's going on. And um, and garbage truck outside of my house, outside of my house. Um, and so you see that whatever success Russia is having is marginal success and get ready for that to be reversed. I mean, yesterday in the area of Kharkov, you're seeing counterattacks being done and the Ukrainians taking back real estate. And again, and you know what they're targeting? They're targeting the, the river crossings, which means logistics getting into Ukraine going to get worse. And the Russian military, not so good at improvising, adapting, and overcoming. Interesting. So uh, we will see. We will see. And we have, I think we have a little bit of an interesting conversation about that. Sun Tzu talks about giving your opponent a golden bridge, right? A bridge that they want to cross. Hence the name Golden Bridge, right? Um, but part of 
that golden bridge is the understanding by the adversary that they will never win this conflict. So, um, so I guess we shall all see as this thing plays out on TV and, uh, you know, and say a prayer for the Ukrainians, the brave Ukrainians that are fighting and dying in this conflict. And, uh, so anyway, without further ado, uh, my friends, uh, join me right now. And they are the Mensa brothers. Take it from here. It is Friday. And, um, I won't say as always, but more often than not, joining me are my friends, two of my three friends. Will has gone into what is known as River City and has <laughs> not not returned a text or email this week. So we all hope that everything is well with Will and his. And so um, with that said, joining me uh, always first now, is uh, Jeff Kenny? I'm uncertain as to Jeff's whereabouts, but I think he's in Southern California. Jeffrey, how are you? Hi, city, but I'm breaking it. Yes, I'm in Southern California. I'm in San Clemente in the hovel that I call my home. Beautiful day here in Southern California. About what 78 degrees sure here on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. big fire up in uh, Aliso Viejo, about halfway between Jeffrey and mm-hmm. I, and uh, yeah. And so, uh, so they got that going for him, which is not good. Uh, joining us from McAllen, Texas. Do you live in McAllen? Do you live in McAllen, Mission, Edinburgh? Whereabouts do you exactly live? I exactly live right in downtown McAllen. Right in downtown. Now, do you want to talk? I, have we covered the fact that um, your um, regular discussion of things birding you have now a fan who looks forward to your birding observations, right? Oh yeah. Have we have we have, have we have we covered have we covered this at all? We have not, have we? We have not. No, no. Oh, so I don't even know if Jeffrey knows. I I think I forwarded it to everybody. So I get an email from a listener who says, "Oh my God, I I so look forward to Tim's birding observations." And some, and I went, "Are you kidding me?" Lynch can never see this because if he sees this, we'll, this will encourage his, this foolishness. And I can't, I can't be a part of that. But dutifully, I forward it to Tim because it is his fan mail. So uh, Tim responded, and now they're like, wh- would you call yourself birders? What would you call yourself? Well, that was uh, it was our listener, Jeffrey uh, Guypo, I think is his, is his last name. Very kind. We've exchanged emails, and he sent me this site, this iNaturalist site, where you can sign up, start posting your bird pictures and whatnot, and, and, and identify them. And what I've discovered is I'm not that good at identifying birds. <laughs> I, 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 I'm sitting there saying, this here is a broadtail hawk. It's not. It's a Cooper's hawk. People would go on there right away. No, no, no. That's a Cooper's hawk. Look at the, look at the plumage and the, and, the, and the coat, and it's, oh, my God. So I've had to up my game. And as I told Jeffrey, was we were exchanging emails because he had said something about, you know, when I had mentioned that, you know, Rebecca and I can sit out here and see a dozen different species. Well, I don't even have a dozen species on my iNaturalist thing. I'm like, God damn it, because I've got all these fly catchers and stuff. I can't figure out what they are. And if I put up something wrong, people start bitching. 
because it gets it gets picked up by the Rio Grande burgers and stuff like that. Oh, so it's serious I mean, because you so say I gotta up my identification game. You say that shit in front of us, and we just like oh, 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 you know. I mean, it's like saying it to <laughs> La- Larry Curly and Mo. We don't fucking know. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I thought I had ladderback woodpeckers because it looks exactly like one, but little tufts of hair and coloration and facial patterns made it. So I don't. I have a yellow. I don't even know what the hell it is now. I get confused. I, but I'm. But I'm. Uh, I've had to up my birding game. Would it be wrong people, for me to say that they they take that stuff relatively seriously? You know, there are people who take that stuff damn seriously. As a matter, of fact. <laughs> I will go to my observations at iNaturalist. What the hell was that stupid woodpecker? It turns out. Okay, everybody, let me know about it. Um, yeah, the, la- hey, the last thing you want to do is golden, misidentify golden a woodpecker. woodpecker. I have golden-fronted woodpeckers, yeah. Well, yeah, so, I'm go- obviously, I mean, no, that's Wait, good, wood- though. Woodpeckers You're- are protected in Lejeune. Protected heavily in Lejeune. <laughs> Not protected. An animal that fucking, I'll tell you that right. his fucking head into a tree, you know, 50,000 times a day. And we're worried about it surviving. Come on, man. That's where the term hard as woodpecker lives comes from. The um all right, let's talk about uh I got forwarded to me by a a friend of ours who will remain nameless. Um an article that I think appeared in the Atlantic. Um New Yorker. What's that? New Yorker. New Yorker. Or New Yorker. And uh typically we don't discuss much out of the New Yorker, but um I I I perused it. And uh, and then I listened to it, and and I I I enjoyed the shit out of it. Um, it's entitled "The Weakness of the Despot." An expert on Stalin discusses Putin, Russia, and the West by David Remnick. Um, and I what I asked uh, Tim and and Jeff to do is pick out um, one point and from the article that they they thought I find I found that as I went through the article after I listened to it twice today. Uh, walking my dogs, and um, and I found it picking out one point very, very not easy, and uh, so I'll let Jeff open it up. Uh, Jeff, uh, first of all, uh, a point, if you will, um, relative to the weakness of the despot. Yeah, I agree with almost everything the guy has in the article, except um, he makes this generalization about Joe Stalin, where he says, well, there's a constant argument, and there always is, does the, does the situation make the person, or does the person make the situation? Paraphrase of, do the times make the man, or the man make the times? And he says, he points out, he thinks that because the Soviet Union was the way it was, it made Joe Stalin the way he was, not the other way around. I, I very much disagree with that. Because Joe Stalin's one of the architects of the Soviet Union, and I don't think I don't think it was necessary to murder seven million people in the Ukraine, to murder half the the Politburo he had there, to do the horrific things he did, to invade Poland at the same time the Nazis were invading Poland from the west, he invaded them from the east, uh, to murder Polish officers who were under his protection. I mean, he just was a horrible guy, and he wasn't he was. It didn't have to be that way. You know, I mean, it didn't have to be that way. However, I, when he kind of goes into a little bit more, you see that if you're in that kind of uh, government, um, it, it tends to go that way. 
because there's no break on. There's no uh, no free press. There's no uh, there's no private property. There's no tradition of uh, you know of, uh, of freedom of speech or anything like that. They weren't. They didn't had none of that. The other thing was it's almost as he makes it seem like the Soviet Union's inevitability. I don't believe that. I studied this thing. There's two revolutions in 1917. First one was in March when the czar was thrown out. They had a representative, temporary representative government, and they had plebiscite after plebiscite where the communists were involved under Lenin, who had been sent there like like a germ, like a, a germ is in, injected into a body, you know, in order to kill it. They, the Germans sent Lenin into Russia, and Every time there's a plebiscite, the communist government lost in a landslide. Finally, in October, they just walked into the Duma, their word for like the Senate, with revolvers out and said, we're, we're in charge now. So that's the, uh, I don't think it had to be that way. I think it could have gone another way. And if it did, uh, the, one of the biggest mass murder uh, you know, machines in history would not have happened. But that's, you know, the, but the meat of his article, when he kind of like the, he compares similarities that Putin has to Stalin and differences. And I thought that was, that he's pretty good on that. Timmy, uh, a point well, out of the article that you, you found interesting. Well, the one thing I found interesting, and I think what's important to note is it was written on March 8th. So there's some things in the article that proved out uh, not to be true, such as the fact that the Russians aren't winning any longer. But the one thing that I that I pulled immediately out of the article, um, well, there's a couple of things. One is, is is that as you look towards the end, he's talking about an off ramp, which I think is the most useful part about about this article is talking about a way of trying to figure out how how this thing could end. Again, again, I'm, I'm, again this was back in March, and and he put a lot of stock on the Finns that the Finns know the Russians better, and they're probably the best position to. To, to get us to a to a place where we can start uh, um, trying to ramp this thing down and find an off road, and as of today, the Finns have announced, and I will pull this up because I was just reading it, they will without delay join NATO. Um, that's not going to go over well with Russia, and Sweden is following behind them. And I think that this guy Colton, who wrote this article, is savvy enough about this uh, this region to understand that those two countries going to NATO now. With Russia still uh, um, on the downstroke, it looks like they're getting uh, semi-hammered. I think that changes everything, which again brings up what a, what what I think many reasonable people have been fearful all along, which is backing him in a quarter where he thinks these nukes give him some kind of benefit. I I again would rather us be using the old con model of uh, of deterrence, but we're not in a position of deterring anything since this was written. We have come up even more strongly on Ukrainian side with the president and the secretary of defense and all these people basically all but, you know, admitting that we're behind this all the way for regime change. I don't think that was something that Colton, if that's how you say his last name, I don't think that was something he was advocating. And he does appear to be you know, the most widely published expert on the on the on the Russians today and, and, and his, his, his assessment was right on. But it's also the arrogance of. A lot of these experts, they'll they'll spin you a line that sounds good, but if you've got specific knowledge, historical knowledge, like Jeffrey does, it doesn't wash because it's not true. It's just his version of why things are. This is just, he was writing and constructing narrative that your average person 
probably would get right past him. It got right past me, but it's not going to get past guys like Jeff. And that's another thing about uh, that I find unique in today's environment is you keep on seeing expert commentary that's not difficult to pull apart from people that are not considered to be experts. Although I, I, I will always acknowledge Jeffrey's expertise on uh, on these matters, given his... But that's the sloppiness of it, Tim, because I'm not an expert. I'm just a guy who reads and I get interested in something. I go from one tangent to another. If I could do that, there's all these, these sons of bitches who get paid six, six figures to do it. They're not doing it. Oh, that's not, even a better way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, you know? Yeah. I'll give, uh, I'll give you a few. It's not just me. It's, it's all all four of us. You know, constantly do this in different different formats or different subjects, for sure. Yeah. yeah. His name is Stephen Kotkin, K-O-T-K-I-N, and he's the Russia expert that's being interviewed by David Remnick. Um, I'll give you a few, few things that I, that I thought were interesting. Um, quote, Russia is a great power, but not the, but not is a great power, but not that great of a power. Except for these few moments in history that you just enumerated, and he he, he enumerated what? Peter the Great, uh, Stalin, mm-hmm. and uh, what was the third one? Alexander. Alexander, Alexander right. Uh, who defeated Zara, uh, yeah, Zara Napoleon. Alexander, right. And so and, that you just enumerated in trying to match the West, or at least manage the differential between Russia and the West, they resort to coercion. They use a very heavy state-centric approach to try to beat the country forward and upwards in order, militarily and economically, to either match or compete with the West. And that works for a time, but very superficially. Russia has a spurt of economic growth, and it builds up its military. And then, of course, it has... Uh, it's very interesting, you know, the totalitarian state, right? Russia being a great power, but not that great of a power. I, I thought that was very interesting and, and, and insightful. Um, here's another one. And then you guys can, I'll give you a couple more, then you guys can comment on them. Um, give me one second to flip the page. Uh, he says this, the biggest surprise for Putin, of course, was the West. All the nonsense about how the West was decadent, the West was over, the West was in decline, how it's a multipolar world and the rise of China, etc. All of that turned out to be bunk. The courage of the Ukrainian people and the bravery and the smarts of the Ukrainian government and its president, Zelensky, galvanized the West to remember who it was. And that shocked Putin. That's the miscalculation. And then he goes on a few a few sentences later and says, and the West, which was expanded in the 90s, in my view, properly through the expansion of Euro- the European Union and NATO, is revived now and has stood up to Vladimir Putin in a way that neither he nor President Xi expected. I thought that was kind of interesting. And let me give you one more and then you can comment on it. He talked about the about sanctions. The biggest and the most important sanctions are always about technology transfer. It's a matter of starving them of high technology. If over time, through the Commerce Department, you deny them American-made software, equipment, and products, which affects just about every important technology in the world, and you have a target, an enforceable mechanism for doing that, you can't hurt this regime and create a tech... You can 
hurt this regime and create a technology desert. And he, and he talks about countries that would try to get around it, like China, wouldn't dare do it because they would be afraid that they would suffer a similar fate and they need those same products as well. I thought, I thought those were pretty interesting things. Any thoughts about any of that? Yeah, it is interesting. And I would say, like Timmy said when he remarked on when the article was written, the jury is still out on all that, right. including how great the West is, how we're not really pussies that everybody said we were. I don't know about that. The people who aren't pussies are the fucking Ukrainians who are putting up a hell of a fight. And because of the uh, and because of ineptitude or apparent ineptitude of the Russian forces, that emboldened countries in NATO and to to uh, you know to pony up and help supply the Ukrainians. To the point where Finland and now Sweden, it looks like, are going to join NATO. I mean, that's a that's a result of uh, and which which is interesting, Jeff, because if if you ascribe to Jeffrey's um, way of thinking, the classified assessment of what Russia must be must be weaker than shit, right? For the for the Finns to say, hey, without delay, we want to be members of NATO, right? I mean, that's how weak I mean, the, the classified assessment of of Russia must be. And you can see all these other nations piling on Poland, you know, offering, I don't know how many hundred seven T-72 tanks. Right. right? The way the yep. way we the way we've jumped in and the Brits and every every NATO ally has jumped in in public to say, yeah, we're all in I, I, that. So I, I agree with you. If, you. if you think that, you know, these countries are weak <laughs> And NATO has never been anything but a paper. I wouldn't even call it a tiger. Yeah. Okay, I mean certainly nothing to be afraid of, unless your your military is as on its ass as Russia's is. Then maybe you might be afraid of it, right? And then you see all these people looking around who are afraid to do shit, and all of a sudden they're being bold and decisive. So yeah. what must the assessment look like, right, of Russia? What must that look like? It, they must be. I, I just saw another article today that talked about almost a tank brigade getting wiped out in a river crossing when the yeah. Ukrainians caught yeah, it. Did you see that? It's like, and you're watching these things, and you're just like, "Holy shit, man!" They're they're yeah. counterattacking around Kharkiv and taking that back yeah. and blowing up river crossings and things like that. And and they yeah. said in, in one of the articles, one of the quotes I think in the article I read said, "This is only the start." We now have the howitzers from the West. We now have more javelins. We now have more of everything. Get ready to see more yeah. of this. So anyway. You know, again, June 1941 till about October 1941, Germans had it all their way, and they were cataclysmic victories over the Soviet army. Um, this thing's been going on since end of February, right? February, yeah. March, April, not even three months. So... This, and, and in this article, he says another interesting thing. It could be that Putin knows he's got he knows the, the you know the character of of the Russian people, and that they're going to let themselves be battered and smashed around for a while. And eventually, the West is going to lose interest, and especially with uh, the food shortages and stuff, because Ukraine produces a lot of uh, you know worldwide uh, used food and, and so forth. And because of some other things, they'll either lose interest or event, eventually be. Uh, you know, uh, able to be bullied a little bit in regards to uh, not paying that much attention or caring that much about Ukraine, and so he he's looking in the long game. He thinks he can uh, you know he can wear the Ukrainians down. 
And uh, again, that's what happened with the Soviet Union. Now, did the United States inject the shit out of the Soviet Union with hundreds of thousands of, of trucks and aircraft and ammunition and all kind of things? I can answer that. But, you know, yes. Yes, we did. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, whatever the Russian word for yes is, the opposite of nit. <laughs> so, yavol or whatever the fuck, you know. That would be the wrong, da, that would da. be the wrong country. Da. That's, that's the Germans. Da is how you say yes in Russian. My fucked up memory kicked in. But anyways, yeah, that's the, uh, this, like I say, the jury's still out on a lot of this. Right. right now, it's not looking good for the home team if your home team speaks Russian. It looks good if you're Ukrainian, though. Timmy, a thought on any of that? Well, yeah, the the the, the passage you were just reading about the the, the American-made software and equipment and products would affect your every important technology. So any kind of a prolonged uh, um, stranglehold by us applied to is is going to prohibit China from following or helping Russia because they're intimidated of us doing that to them. I don't believe that for a second. That's bullshit to me. There's nothing Why? I've seen that makes that that makes me think that China is in any way intimidated by any sanctions coming from us. And I don't even know how the hell we could do it. How would you? How, okay, so let me. Interesting, interesting question. Because he goes yeah. on in in the article, and he he begins to talk about China. Right. Right, and and he says the Chinese have taken notice. Right. Oh, their, yeah. their elites are concerned that she has thrown in with his friend Putin and they see that as, as a, as a very, very bad mistake. Um, how would you characterize China's stance on Russia as you watched it in the, in, in the last 30 days? They do not seem to be distancing themselves that much. They don't appear to be helping that much, much either. Okay. Um, stop right there. I think that is the fairest assessment I've heard. I think yeah, that, mm-hmm. I think you are absolutely spot on. Yeah, it's, it's what, it, what it, it's, it's almost what it's, like they've they've gone to ground on it, right? Nothing to yeah. see here. We don't want to talk about it, right, Jeff? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like so that there's got to be like a um, like Robert E. Lee thought if he won decisively at Antietam, Brits would join the war on the side of the South, and that didn't happen. And then they lost the next year at Gettysburg. And so for sure, no one will lie itself. England didn't like the United States even then. <laughs> they kept thinking they were, they were going to bring us back into the fold. I, I, I thought I – thought... I think that China China's is in the same – not the same. Nothing's ever the exact same. But I think it's similar about the fucking socialist – Former socialist uh, dudes, and, um, and but uh, d- it depending on you know uh, optimism, say okay, this is worth the risk. Like every time it's error, even though they're outnumbered fifty to one, they kick ass, and so you know that it kind of you know, it's not going. The Ukrainians are displaying the same when they if you we back, they'll actually. It's not a, a useless uh, expenditure. It'll actually, it will pay off. Whereas with Afghanistan and probably Iraq, hey Jeff, hey Jeff, it's, uh, you, you're you know, you're, right. cu- you're cutting out a lot. Can you turn off uh, your sure. internet and just use your phone? 
I should have thought of that already. I'm sorry. That's all right. Because Kirk, Kirk, who listens, says, you sound like shit. What's going on? Yeah. Yeah, it's a... Uh, no, we'll see. But normally that, that, that sounds better. Um, I, I'll right. read you one more passage. Um, and this is, uh, again... Stephen Kotkin talking. He says this, But again, we have no idea what's going on inside. We hear chatter. There's a lot of amazing intelligence that we're collecting, which is scaring the Chinese, making them worry. Do we have that level of penetration of their elites as well? But the chatter is by people who don't have a lot of face time with Putin talking about how he is crazy and whatnot. I just I, I thought that was an interesting thing because um i mean you have seen the united states communicate intelligence early about intentions and things like that and so um and then he made he he makes a comment about you know we are looking hard for a high level defector that will come out and denounce the invasion blah 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 putin's doing everything he can do um to to prohibit that, prohibit that um but again, I thought it was interesting. The link uh, to this article is, uh, and again, as Timmy said, it was written on March 8th. And, uh, you know, one of the quotes you see in there is the only place that Ukraine is winning this war is on Twitter. And you read that, which makes you then look at the date. When the hell was this written? And, and who is, who is this guy? Right. And that's what, that's what, that's what I saw. That's what I saw the date, March 11th. And I was like, okay, he could be forgiven. Um, yeah. And, uh, but no, I, I thought it's very, it's very good. You can listen to a, a condensed version of, of, of the whole article, which I think is about a 19 minute listen and which is very well done. A lot of times that stuff is not well done. This one is, and, uh, that's in the article and you'll find that in the link as well. So, uh, a final thought on that, uh, Timmy. Well, he uh, like 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 every good writer does. He writing about uh, defense related issues. He gets into his uh, Sun Tzu quote, and his Sun yeah, Tzu quote. I was going to say that. Yeah, the Sun Tzu quote is 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 addressing what Sun Tzu always does because Sun Tzu had a bias for winning this shit, and it was you must always build a bridge for your opponent, a golden bridge, right. so he can find a way to retreat. Now. At the geostrategic level, not that we know anything about that in the you know geostrategy in this country, I'm not sure how you build that off ramp. But we completely abdicated that. We're we're a hundred percent behind. We're going to finish this. Well, hold on. Let, let me ask. So, okay, don't you think you have to to, to show him that hey, if you want to continue this, you're going to lose. Don't you think in order to make a deal, that's the first thing you, sh you 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 have to dangle that out if you do want to end it? Otherwise, why would he end it? So to me, yeah. I think well, the first. Well, you're, you're saying from from our, we're, we shouldn't be a, a participant in this thing. We're, he's going to lose. We could see sitting on the side saying, "Hey, man, no, that, no, 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 no." I would say that. No, I would say we supply the shit out of it. Uh, and again, we mind our business. We supply them weapons. And whatever else we can supply them and still maintain, you know, our distance. But I think that is a way of crafting a certain outcome. And mm -hmm. then you, you're active in in opening, you know, an off ramp for him. But the first thing that right. has to do, I think you have to create is a certainty in his mind 
or at least the doubt in his mind that he can win this. And if you don't do that, then yeah. you, you, he won't stop. Yeah, yeah and the golden what, and the golden bridge think, thing. But but you're yeah. imposing what you think is going to be enough to make him realize he's not going to win it. And I'm not. I, I mean, I know that we don't have any specifics about that. I would hope somebody in the government would have a very good idea of what that pressure point would be. But I have no confidence in that either. I mean, right. you you know you've well, got to. But, but you I, I'll let Jeffrey, Jeffrey clean that up. Yeah, remember, Sun Tzu never wrote about wars of annihilation. He he was writing about wars that were, in a way, what Clausewitz said, their extension of politics. Right. So consequently, things like the Golden Bridge are only made possible by the use of third parties. Third parties are the ones who explain, facilitate, and point the way to the Golden Bridge. It doesn't have to be the United States, but as you've already seen, Israel and the Turks get involved in this thing. Right. Something like that, where it becomes obvious. The United States is like, and there's back channel stuff. There's Russian Americans saying, hey, look, we're sick of seeing Russians getting killed. You know, there's a way out of this for you guys, you know, and then, then they, they start uh, letting them find the way. You know, that, but that's the thing. To, to lay it out explicitly is really a form of ultimatum. It has to be something that is clear to the, uh, to the target, in this case, Russia, where they don't feel that it's being coerced on them by anything other than the realistic circumstances on the ground. Not some other third party leaning on them. You know what I mean? It's gotta, that's what Sun Tzu's talking about. Too, where the guy, Golden Bridge, is a, is a term that means it's not a humiliation and it's, not, it's something that he can sell to his own people as not being a defeat. And I, but I think the makings of that is the certainty that you, right. you won't win it. You got or, or no. bloody his fucking nose, bloody right. his nose bad, right? Exactly. All right. All right. No, I, again, I, the link is uh, here in in this post. Uh, you can either read or listen to it, and I would recommend it. Uh, the next thing I want to read uh, or want to visit is three clips of um, of an interview that Representative Luria did, and. Um, the uh, it's done by a guy named Ward Carroll. Ward is a Naval Academy grad. Now, if you ask me how really? I know, <laughs> if you ask me how I know that, uh, and the and the and the link is here, he says it ten fucking times in the interview, right? Well, the Naval Academy education we have, you know, the Naval Academy, the Naval where I served with Admiral Davidson and Admiral Aquilino uh, back in the day. Hey Ward, back away from yourself, okay? We got the memo. You're you're a Naval Academy dude, but anyway, after a certain amount of time. Because if you didn't go to the Naval Academy, you get sick of hearing that pretty quick. Oh my God! So it, yeah, but he, anyway, he. Do, I think the interview's an interesting one and a good one. Now, I'm going to play how. Representative Luria gets on my radar, I don't know, uh, at some point a year ago. All right. So you're going to hear that first. And um, it is still the most pointed discussion of Force Design 2030 that I've heard that's taken place in public. I've never seen a, a, a better discussion. And so I'm going to play that for you right now. Great. Thank you, Mr. Gallagher. Ms. Luria. Well, 
Thank you, and I'll start by echoing uh, Mr. Gallagher's sentiment. I've, I've said it many times. I think you know, we need to have a battle force 2025 uh, because of this immediate uh, concern, threat, deterrent that we need in the Pacific. And um, you know, very encouraged by the idea of the laws. I think that you know the idea that we came up with the idea for a capability. Um, that can bring the fight forward, can go after some of the vulnerabilities of the Chinese in the theater is very important. And I want to, a little bit in the weeds, go back to try to understand, again, the genesis of this. Um, I mean, quite simply, is there a document that was generated? Is there a process by which PACOM and or the joint staff translated this requirement forward in order to then lead to the acquisition process and, i.e., the request that you have in this budget like how do we how do we do more of this? How do you know what process is there that allows us to quickly operationalize a concept to actually delivery? Very briefly, ma'am, because I know your time is short. In, uh, our previous commandant, General Neller, said this is what we were going to do. He issued out a document that said begin to do this. Our expedition, our Marine Corps Warfighting Lab issued a tentative manual for expeditionary advanced base operations. That's out now for review. Start with this and, and modify it. But the demand signal really, ma'am, does come nothing in a formal document, but it comes in our daily interactions with Indo-PACOM through Marine Forces Pacific. Uh, it comes through those headquarters and say the COCOM has delivered a demand signal. What can you do for me? So the demand signal through the GFM process, the global force management process, or future capabilities, how is, how is the combatant commander, how is Admiral Davidson, now Admiral Aquilino, communicating to you as the services that are going to acquire capabilities that are requested through this budget? How is that being communicated into a process where that actually results in us buying something new, like the laws, in order to help in the theater? That certainly, ma'am, comes through through their prioritized lists of things that they, they care about, they wish uh, to have. It also just comes through, literally, ma'am, daily interactions from the service components that are part of uh, Indo-PACOM, saying this is what my boss just referenced. Rather than wait on a formal uh, process, I need this, then the service chief of this Title 10 authority says, this is what I want you to go look at, and we, we take off looking for that. And, and in our case, I think we found it. Okay. Well, thank you for that feedback, and perhaps uh, an additional conversation I can continue with your staff. All right. So that's how she gets on my radar. And um, so I want to play the first clip. And um, the first clip uh, is about, he asks her about shipbuilding, and uh, and I believe, um, hold on, the 2023 budget, and he also asked her about deterrence by denial. So you're going to hear that right now, and then on the backside of that, we're gonna we we will take up the issue. Let's just talk about uh, what your article brings up with respect to the shipbuilding plan and the 2023 budget submission. Um, so you mentioned a few key players kind of in this, this conversation and both uh, in that as well as their roles um, in the Indo-Pacific. So kind of maybe frame the picture with what uh, has now been kind of coined the Davidson window. Um, so did you make that up or is that... It's been used so frequently, but I think Mike Gallagher kind of started that, you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in the dialogue calling it the Davidson window. And for those who aren't familiar, that's really based on testimony that Admiral Davidson gave last year to the Senate Armed Services Committee, essentially saying that it's, it's very likely that China could try to take Taiwan by force in the next six years. That's now five years. So it puts that time frame at 2027. And so that's a framing, really, for me, about a lot of these decisions that are made about the budget that we are trying to you know, decide on in the House today. Um, you know, that 
is really something I think that drives a sense of urgency. And you mentioned, you know, the, the questioning of, of General Milley. Uh, I think that we've mitigated risk relative to China. Mm-hmm. And I think that the probability of armed conflict with China, uh, the consequence would be high, but the probability is not high in the near term in terms of this particular budget. Uh, now, as you well, get in the out years, yeah. as you get in the out years, what do you define by? I think out that cha- years? the out years is beyond five years. So okay. beyond so the that does up. not concur with what we've heard from Admiral Davidson and Admiral what Admiral Aquilino Davidson and said and Admiral Aquilino said was they said that the probability uh, or the uh, capability of China to attack Taiwan is going to be 2027 capability, not probability. Okay, and and that is exactly what President Xi charged his military to do. Well, I would say that myself and many others on this committee interpreted Admiral Aquilino and Davidson's statements differently. But as we're That's limited, true. In they time, were interpreted differently. But what they um, said was the I, capability to attack Taiwan was okay. to be developed by 2027. That's not the same as a decision to attack Taiwan. I think that they said that there was a high probability within the next six years, now five years. And I've had that conversation directly with Aquilino. At various times, I think more than once, and I have also, you know, in in other circumstances other than on the record in hearings, I think there's a big disconnect. I think there's a big disconnect about that sense of urgency that Admiral Davidson, now Admiral Aquilino, who's the commander of U.S. Indo-PACOM, what they feel on a day-to-day basis how they are operating, how they are using their forces, the challenges that they have every day, versus what's getting translated through the Pentagon. Because if you ask General Milley the same question, it's not a question that really portrays so much urgency as it does, you know, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, would say, well, they'll have that capability by 2027. But, you know, there's that real discussion in there, like, where's the will? What are the provocative things? What could make the Chinese feel like they need to act? And so all of those things, you know, when we talk about the fleet, when we talk about, you know, the recent 30-year shipbuilding plan or the budget request that came from this administration this year and last year, there's some things that don't sync up. You know, if we have a critical time window, now termed the Davidson window, where this conflict is most likely, at the same time, we're getting budgets, 30-year shipbuilding plans, and they seek to shrink the size of the fleet at the time that the threat is most eminent. Um, and so that mismatch has driven a few things over the last, um, you know, last budget cycle, last NDA, which is the defense bill. And now this year we're in this time of year where we do the hearings from all of the you know, combatant commanders. So Admiral Aquilino has come to speak before Congress. We'll soon be hearing uh, from Navy leadership, the Secretary of the Navy and the Chief of Naval Operations. And really looking to ask them the questions, you know, how does this request, and just to sum it up briefly, it's a request that seeks to decommission 24 ships this year and only build eight. And so you're looking at, you know, maybe not even the number of ships is as important, and that's why I got into this article with um, that's published in SEMSEC. It's also about capacity and capability. So the CNO is really framing everything in readiness, capacity, and capability. Well, you're cutting the number of ships, but if you look at the longer-term range, how much capacity and capability are we losing? So I sought to you know, framed within this Davidson window, analyze the, those numbers by the number of VLS cells, the vertical launch system cells, um, which are what carry our Tomahawk land attack missiles, our standard missiles, the ASROC, which is anti-submarine rocket, so a, um, a rocket-launched uh, torpedo, and the, you know, the main arsenal of our surface ships. And then at the end, you know, also touching on other anti-surface capabilities, of which, you know, I think we've you know, been behind um, in the sense that, you know, for the most part, the harpoon remains our main anti-surface weapon, um, has a significantly shorter range than equivalent Chinese um, anti-surface missiles do, um, and then the naval strike missile and other capabilities that are being developed. 
But if you look during that window between now and 2027, the number of VLS cells that will be lost by the proposed decommissionings um, and the platforms we're looking at, cruisers, there's 22 cruisers remaining. The plan that the Navy is proposing decommissions all 22 of those in a very rapid fashion. And then the SSGNs, um, which are submarines that carry the large uh, number um, of uh, missiles, have a large strike capability. Um, if you put those two together um, and you look over the course between now and the time the Davidson window starts, it, you lose about 1,600 VLS cells. And then if you look between now and 2035, you lose 1,980. To put that in perspective, all of our European allies with their capabilities of VLS cells have about 2,300. So, you know, we are losing a significant number of VLS cells capability and, you know, the, the rapid decommissioning um, of the cruisers leads to that. In my article, I made some proposals about how we could look at this differently. Um, you know, some of the cruisers were put in this long-term layup. They're in poor material condition. They're not ships that we need to try to maintain for the long term, but focusing in on the 12 remaining, essentially the 12 that have the most life left are in the best material condition, being able to keep those to 42 years um, and then use additional other platforms, in this case the EPF, um, as a way to have VLS launchers to increase um, that capability for a much um, lower cost, much more dispersed. The signal it sends, um, if you're looking at having a deterrent, really a deterrence by denial strategy and having that capability to forward deploy all those VLS cells um, is very important. Talked to Brian in the previous episode about the difference between deterrence and denial and, and the previous administration versus this administration in sort of general terms. And I did try to touch on that at the beginning uh, of my article because I do really think that that deterrence by denial um, is as far as the China-Taiwan scenario, that is where we need to be. That's the fleet we need to build. And when you're looking at these budgets that request to essentially slash the capability we have today, if we're looking at a five-year window, we have to fight with the fleet we have today. We can't build new ships during that time frame. We have to use the ships that we have. We have to use them the most efficiently as possible. And then we need to look out at the longer term. So this divest and invest strategy, essentially, that's permeated, not just this administration, but several previous administrations. But the problem is, is we just see divestment, divestment, divestment. And there's never any investment in that future capability. And, you know, that has left us in a situation where, you know, with a fleet of about 298 today, we'll rapidly be at 280. Um, yet, you mentioned what happened in 2017. Congress codified into law that we should have a 355-ship Navy, of which 11 aircraft carriers. And, you know, we're not on a trajectory to reach that. Um, the 30-year shipbuilding plan that was recently released, um, I question a little bit about being a, a plan when it has three options. I feel like it's kind of choose-your-own-adventure. Um, you know, one plan seemed like, let's go heavy on surface. The next plan was, you know, let's emphasize submarines. And then the final plan, I feel like, was kind of a throwaway plan because it was ambitious in a way that, you know, I don't think that the Navy was really saying we're coming to Congress to ask you to do this. But I feel like we're not really leveraging our full industrial base. I mean, for example, um, you know, the DDGs, the Arleigh Burke class destroyers, you know, that's the ship that we're building on time and on budget right now, and we can build them, uh, and we can build easily two a year, and we can build, you know, we could realistically ramp up to three a year. So just an example of last year's budget, they came to Congress and only asked for one destroyer. And so it was this real, you know, everybody's saying through the course of all of our hearings, we need to build the size of the Navy, China's our number one threat, we need to have forces so that we can have presence, so that we can have deterrence. 
um, yet it was a budget that sought to shrink the size of the Navy again. So what it ended up happening um, was, you know, I worked um, with a group of Republicans. Mike Rogers, the ranking member from Alabama, um, you know, came together to add $24 billion to the defense budget. A large portion of that added um, amount went to building two destroyers, went to speeding up the class of, of construction of Virginia-class submarines, went to adding additional resources to the Pacific Defense Initiative, and we... And last year's NDA preserved two of the cruisers of the seven they wanted to decommission, but they're right back again trying to, you know, decommission um, some of those same ships more rapidly even than they were before. All right, Jeffrey, thoughts on that first? Uh, give me a thought on that first clip. What, what was interesting to me, she goes into it. She talks about the size of the navy and the why and the reason you build ships and certain types of ships. Is like, is the end result of a logical process, and she references uh, Secretary of the Navy Layman, who was Secretary in the late '80s and so forth, or in the mid '80s, I think. And he was a sharp guy, and he was a student of uh, Thayer Mahan, the father of uh, the naval strategy that made the United States dominant, in my opinion, in the 19th and the 20th century. And what it is is first you've got to sell the American people on the fact you need a Navy. Then you go to, you know, allies in Congress and stuff and, and, and uh, with the specifics of why you need a certain number of ships and the types. And then you pursue that. It's very logical. And, but the, the way we got ships and the, the, um, the guy who's running the interviews kind of says, you know, we, we started with, we got these littoral ships. You really didn't know what we we're going to do with them. And that's true. Cause I remember that, you know, and then, uh, you know, and then now it looks like we're going to give them up because it turns out we don't need them. And, uh, and, and that was interesting to me, that she was a student of that herself. She knew that, you know, and, uh, and, that, uh, and that type of common sense, uh, back to basics, and, and referencing, you know, naval leaders of our past, in this case, Mahan and Lehman, you know, was impressive, I thought. Timmy, how about you? A point. Yeah, well, the uh, the point she brought up about the de- the denial strategy, excuse me, deterrence strategy, deterrence right. by punishment, that is specifically, I guess, I guess she accredited Trump with 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 backing that up. That she explains what deterrence is, and, and deterrence is the ability to punish somebody so severely that it it, it would deter them from taking a, an an, a, an action for which punishment may be one of the one of the uh, one of the results. And instead of that, apparently. Uh, Thanks to, um, I guess this is Defense Secretary uh, Catherine Hicks, we're into integrated deterrence, um, which which nobody really can define. It, who's integrating? What deterrence are we talking about? And this is all this integrated deterrence stuff is based off of a foreign policy article by Secretary Hicks called "Getting to Less," where she talks about it's the right time to have grand strategy and explain. Expand foreign policy tools while, by the way, shrinking the Navy. So it's supposed to be some kind of integrated deterrence, um, but it's not a deterrence because it's not around that much anymore. And it certainly doesn't have the ability to pack the punch that was imagined when you were talking about a force that deters by punishment. And that, so that was, uh, that's what immediately stood out to me, though. The way that they're 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 equivocating on the on the on the nuances of the language and whatnot, you know. I'm not even got campaigning because I know it's the last one, and I can't wait for that one. The um, 
I'll, I'll kind of build on what Jeff was talking about. I, I thought, I mean, her basic objection is the disconnect between what the naval officers who run Indo-PACOM are saying and what essentially the chairman's saying, that mm-hmm. China's our pacing threat, and yet you have the chairman and the budget not reflecting that. And she she talks about the, the Davidson window, and um, and she she says Admiral Davidson said, uh, told us, and she says she's heard it on numerous occasions that the Chinese have a window, right? That they believe you know we believe between now and twenty twenty seven that so five more years that they have, where after which we will be more more pivoted to the Pacific, if you will. And she says, and in, in that window, right, we we are decommissioning ships at the cyclic rate. We're gonna take the United States Navy down from two ninety eight to two hundred and eighty platforms. And then she begins to talk about, well, how does that make sense in vertical launch cells? Right? Mm-hmm. Right. And and so she says we're going to go down sixteen hundred vertical launch cells, and th- those are pods on ships, right? That launch tomahawks mm-hmm. and and all these things in this in the Davidson window. And she says, "Look, you're not going to get to schedule the war. You're going to have to dance with who who you got." And so in this thing, you would expect us to be maintaining capabilities, not shedding them in this window of vulnerability. But there doesn't seem like there's a sense of urgency in the Pentagon that there is in the Western Pacific. And I, I, you listen to that, and honestly, it is a head scratcher. If they are the pacing threat, you know, um, do you do you honestly believe that you'll get to schedule the conflict when you want to? And why, in God's name, would you be shedding, you know, you know, all the ships they're shedding, right? And and the, right. And, and, you, all, and all the VLSs that they're that they're shedding, yeah. And so I, I'm kind of curious because I think the and CNO testified right. next next week, um, yeah. as so I'm kind of curious to see this stuff play but, out. So it makes me suspicious because, as you pointed out, you know, she talked about force design. Well, later on we'll talk. I guess we'll go over that. But the force design has this. Uh, divesting ourselves of all these weapon systems and all these capabilities and resources without a replacement yet. As if we think, oh, we got time. But you may not have time. I mean, Korea just boiled up within a couple of weeks, and then we're sending guys who never went to boot camp into the worst war, you know, one of the worst wars we ever had. Well, and, I mean, that, and let me just let me, let me plug a, a, a story from the last week in, right? And that is General Heckel saying we couldn't get there. Right. Right. I mean, when the fuck have you ever heard a Marine general officer say that we couldn't get there? Yeah. A Mew from the East Coast. Yeah. Could not, could right. not get there, you know. Right. And so. And s- anyway, keep going, Jeff, if, if you have more. No, that's exactly it. I mean, uh, they couldn't get the three ships necessary to get twenty four hundred Marines across the pond. Are you shitting me? Really? United States Navy couldn't do that. But and, Jeff, but Jeff or, let, let me ask you this. I mean, because you're, you're around the amphibious shipping problem on a relatively regular right. basis, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are, were you surprised at that at all? No. No, it's been, going, it's been getting progressively worse um, since uh, – actually, since the early days of the Iraq thing. You know? 
the the I'm talking 2003, four or five. And it's it's it was not good then, and it's getting progressively worse. To where, you know, when I retired from the Marine Corps, we were fighting over making sure we had 40 amphib. We put, now we're lucky we get 30. It's awful, you know. Timmy, thought. No, I'm ready for the next clip, brother. Okay, I've been prepping for that. All right, the second, the second clip, you're going to hear uh, Ward Carroll talk to uh, Representative, Representative Luria about. Uh, I'll just call it the general t- topic uh, strategy, and here it is. As you're speaking, I'm I'm left wondering why is the CNO going this way? What struck me as I watched your exchange in testimony with General Milley was he was arguing semantics, in essence, about verb tenses. And as we're trying to parse out what was the actual thing that Davidson and Aquilino said, I don't know how the chairman wouldn't be biased towards being ready today. And this is kind of the lesson of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, this is what we know uh, as a function of our Naval Academy education is you don't get to pick when the test comes. And so it just seemed like the chairman was sort of saying, yeah, we're just going to, the thing ain't going to happen for five years. And so divest to invest, which is kind of a too cute by half bumper sticker to my eye, um, is just what it is. So you're about to talk to CNO. Uh, He's about to testify. What do you think he's going to say in defense of this strategy? Well, Maybe back up kind of a few years in this. I mean, because we, we actually got a 30-year shipbuilding plan this year. There have been years, um, you know, through the cycle that I've been in Congress. I've only, it's only my fourth NDA where we didn't even have a 30-year shipbuilding plan. And what I would say about the previous administration is there was a lot of talk about building up the Navy, um, but not really the action to follow that. But then Battle Force 2045, which was an ambitious shipbuilding plan, um, came out very close to the end of the administration, but really with no possibility in that time frame, September. Yeah, I, I don't know where that 355 number came from, really, because when I was talking to principals in the Department of the Navy, they were like, we got no plan to 355. Mm-hmm. And then when Battle Force 2045 came out, it actually overshot that um, in the sense that they started counting and adding in a significant Trolls. number of unmanned vessels. Right. Um, we probably need a whole other episode to address yes. that issue. <laughs> um, but, you know, I want to kind of go back um, to what I realized, you know, through the hearings over the course of you know, four years now, is that nothing is ever presented to us in the framework of a strategy. And this caused me to do a lot of, you know, sort of research, watching old hearings, essentially, you know, from the 1980s when John Lehman was testifying, and kind of understanding how the 1980s maritime strategy, how it was portrayed differently, how the message was communicated to Congress, how did, during the Reagan administration, um, how was the support garnered from the top, from the president on down through the administration? Essentially, we need a 600-ship Navy to defeat the Soviet Union. We're going to go build that. And, you know, why, although every military leader comes and says that today, do the budgets, which are statements of policy, not match that? Um, And so I feel like everything is done backwards. And, you know, John Lehman will say that, and it's really obvious that it should flow this way, you should have the strategy, and the strategy should drive the requirements, and then from those requirements come the POM and the budget. I feel like everything's backwards now. So essentially, you know, there's a top line that's given to the Department of Defense, just being very basic, it's 
split into three pieces, Army, Navy, Air Force, and that's not exactly right, but generally. And so the Navy has their slice of the pie, and they have to say, well, what can we do within these constraints? And the problem with that is, is the real world counts, and you have to look at where do you actually need the preponderance of your resources. And if you look right now, um, you know, and China's our number one threat, it's a maritime theater, and the Navy and the Air Force need a larger portion of those resources. And then if you look beyond that as well, what's the number one priority of the Department of Defense? It's building the Columbia-class submarine, which is part of our nuclear deterrent. So, and the nuclear deterrent is the cornerstone of our defense, so we have to be able to build that leg of the nuclear triad in order to replace the Ohio-class submarines um, as they age out. Yet that is completely falling on the Navy's shipbuilding budget. So where are the things that you can flex? Can you take some of that off the Navy? The Congress authorized a, um, a sea-based strategic deterrent fund several years ago before I came to Congress, but it's been authorized, but it's never been funded. So what are the things can we do to kind of free up more of those resources to the Navy to actually do the shipbuilding that's necessary to have the Navy that we need to provide a credible deterrent? And on top of that, you know, in Congress it's really easy to get people excited about the next shiny new thing that we're going to buy or build, but I also feel that we don't invest enough in the infrastructure necessary to maintain those things, um, whether that's directly in the shipyards, in the maintenance availabilities, you know, in all of the things. And if you look at the cruisers, for example, I mean, that's, it's a travesty what happened over the life of that class of ships, because um, truly the most capable platform in our lifetime, I mean, when I came into the Naval Academy in 93, I feel like the ships we were operating really evolved out of Cold War and Cold War missions, but we never built a replacement for the cruiser. I notionally said, you know, let's convert 13 that we have, let's add eight more. You could really build eight additional EPFs for the cost of one DDG Flight 3. And so, you know, there's not only the cost issue, but like whether the sort of creativity, creative ideas that we can in the very short time frame that we need to be focusing on. All right, Timmy, go ahead. Thought about strategy. Hey. So as as you listen to that thing, I think she outlined in that one the the Taipan uh, Taipan Taiwan <laughs> Taiwan yeah I know I'm, I'm getting it with confused with the James Clavell book or something Clavell yeah 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 but at, at any rate the, the Taiwan scenario her question right off the bat is who's in charge of what as it's set up right now strategically um, there seems to be a lot of ambiguity about who's it authorized to put what forces into play without without the Congress being involved. And I found that to be rather interesting. I, I would think into pay commerce yes. guy in charge. Yeah. I guess uh, I guess there's some ambiguity about what exactly he can and can't bring in to the fight. Yeah, the War Powers Act. And, and it all came down from the Goldwaters Nichols, if I right. if I've got my my segments right. Because that's where that's where it was leading was the Goldwaters Nichols, I believe was 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 part of that conversation. No, no you're, uh, War you're mixing is, is earlier. No, War powers the, is, is post-Nixon, yeah. The, the, third, the third one she talks about, uh, they talk about authority, which I thought was very interesting. This one, um, I, I thought it was real interesting, right, um, when they start talking about uh, Battle Force 2045 and a 355-ship Navy that was put into law, right? I mean, that the Congress yeah, passed. Right. And, she's, and she said, and then he said, there is no plan. To get to 355, the Navy tried to, you know, they threw all their drones in there, right? All their wooden boats that they carve out when they're in plebe school and shit like that, yeah. right? And, <laughs> and, and and they still could get to 355, right? So you're you're hearing that and you're like, what the fuck? Like, where does this shit come from? 
And then, and then she talks about nothing is presented as strategy. She talks about Lehman. She talks about budgets don't match rhetoric. And then she talks about right. the Columbia class, uh, the replacement for the Columbia class, is completely funded out of Navy shipbuilding, which is a huge, huge, huge hit, right? And so you're reading, and she says, "Look, there's got to be a way to flex the budget, but there, but it's never flexed, right? It's like it's cut up in yeah. in three pieces, and then and then the service chiefs, uh, you know, divvy it up, and there isn't this. And she made the point: our pacing threat is China. It is a naval and air fight. You would expect that the the budget for the navy would be plussed up." The budget for the Air Force would be plus stuff as we pivot in this direction. It is not. And so, uh, yeah, I thought that was interesting. I'm sorry I confused those clips because her description of how the layman administration went about defining the requirements based off a of strategy and then building towards uh, uh, building towards that strategy, which she said that they are currently not even remotely close to doing. They seem to be kind of scattershot with the what they're building. I thought that was the most that was the most prescient thing that she said in the whole uh, the whole uh, presentation. No, it's powerful. Uh, when she, she ta- and she talks about going back and watching the hearings and his testimony about how they right. crafted it for Congress and, and things like that and things like that. Jeff, any thoughts about that's that's that was sharp. Yeah. Any thoughts about any of that, Jeff? Well, yeah, I, I, that's the, that's like what I first spoke about, you know, the. Uh, you know, when she talks about, uh, you know, how you you go back to the layman the layman method of uh, getting things that we want, you know, and it's got to be first thing it's got to be understandable to the American people. Then it's got to be uh, there has to be a way shown to Congress on how to do it. And and like the guy says, Mister Naval Academy, there is no plan. And like she says, you know, that she kind of reiterates that. You know, there's just no logic to it you know and to 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 get this much money there has to be logical um and easy to understand it's like napoleon would pull a corporal out corporal kenny this is the plan for for the attack on borodino do you understand it Uh, no no i don't sir shoot that man bring in mcnamara (laughs) (laughs) but eventually the idea was i understand it it, sir (laughs) yeah yeah, well, then explain to me. Well, let's not go too far. French is a second language to me. But uh, no, it's like you. then the corporal lays, says in his hackneyed French what the plan is. And if it's pretty accurate to what they just said, they'll do it. But if it's not, that means in the heat of battle, it won't be understood. And there's battles in the war, you know, with kinetics and bullets and shit. Then there's those battles that we hear about from our friends up on the hill, Capitol Hill. And they're pretty hotly contested. There's smart fuckers on, on all sides, you know, tr- going against each other. And to have this hapless way of getting the, the budget done and everything, it's almost like they're not really trying. You know, it's like they're not really putting forth the old Naval Academy effort, as the guy would say <laughs> who's interviewing her. You know? Ward Carroll. Ward yeah. Carroll. We lo- Ward does a good job. He yeah, just, he does. He just mentions <laughs> Naval Academy too many times. And, he's like he Ward is, Cleaver. He's, very he is, he's in the company of another <laughs> Naval Academy grad, which explains why Ward is is doing that. The um, here's the third. They had clip. to edit out all the all the noise of the rings knocking together in that. Yeah, yeah. You try. They, <laughs> they, they He does a good job of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, here's the third clip, and I I think it's a very very interesting discussion 
where she begins to talk about um, deterrence by denial and and the authority that needs to be in place. And then your political strategy is strategic ambiguity. So listen to that and we'll talk about it on the backside. So I feel like, as you said, this goes way back. When we were fielding LCS, DDG 1000, sort of a build it and then we'll figure out what we're going to do with it. We didn't do what you're talking about in terms of the John Lehman way that you build a fleet, not to mention uh, fund a fleet. And it seems like to go way back to, again, our Naval Academy training, Lehman is a big student of Mahan. And Mahan was all about you've got to sell the need for a Navy to the American public. And I think that's what we're not doing. So we can jump up and down about China is the pacing threat and that sort of thing. But I don't think anybody really thinks that that's, you know, imminent. And I don't think it's getting translated to the top. Admiral Aquilino has not directly briefed the president. So is, as his combatant commander in the Indo-PACOM AOR, these are very complex scenarios. And there's a lot of questions about authorities. If you're going to deter by denial, decisions have to be made essentially before a fait accompli action date. But why is that? Is that because the president hasn't asked for that meeting? I don't know that all the inside details of it, but I've been asking about this for about a year. Um, and I know from Admiral Aquilino, from General Milley, from others that, you know, to my knowledge, and that, 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 that briefing hasn't taken place. And I think that General Milley feels that, you know, the information coming out of the Pentagon is sufficiently preparing the president with the information he needs about this scenario. But in my mind, just where you contrast Admiral Davidson's testimony and General Milley's response to my questions, the sense of urgency is not being translated. Yeah, absolutely not. And so I think that there's a lot of information that is necessary to come directly from the commander to the commander-in-chief about the decisions that need to be made. And I also think, and this may be beyond the scope of what we have time to talk about today, there's a lot of questions about authorities as well related to this. So, And that ties into the question of you know, strategic ambiguity. Is that still the right stance? Um, if you look at authorities within the War Powers Act. You mean with respect to Taiwan? Is that what you're saying? If you think about a scenario where we're going to deter China, we're going to prevent them from invading Taiwan. So what do you have to do to prevent them? You have to have a credible force there. You have to have presence. But what is essentially the, the trigger point that you could say you have the authority to take action to prevent them? You imagine an amphibious assault you know, across the strait, 140 nautical miles roughly. A decision has to be made. Um, and in what time frame can that decision be made? And the president, can he make that decision? He can't make that decision. He has to come to Congress to make that decision. Because under the War Powers Act, you can act in self-defense, um, but you can't introduce forces in an area where hostilities are imminent. Um, so there's a scenario where, as you know, say there's indication that China is massing forces in order to take action, we can't just introduce more forces there at that particular moment without congressional authority. So there's this question of authorities, essentially, that would even allow us to use the force that we have that can counter uh, Chinese aggression is not fully addressed. And I think that's wrapped up a lot in this question of strategic ambiguity. I mean, our policy since 1979 has been strategic ambiguity. We won't, we won't, we won't clarify, you know, um, whether we would come to the aid of Taiwan, but I think we need real, a real change in that to say we have strategic clarity. The United States will come to the assistance of Taiwan 
to maintain the status quo. I think that part is important because sure. we're not advocating for Taiwanese independence, but you know, the United States will come to the aid of Taiwan. And you just mentioned a few minutes ago, well, do the American people really have the will to do this? That's a big factor. Yeah. So what are your constituents saying? What are you hearing with respect to their priorities? Um, so I get this question a lot. I actually was touring a local factory, a planter's peanut production facility yesterday, and a man came up to me and he said, I am just very concerned about China and China and Taiwan, and I'm seeing you talking all the time about them shrinking the Navy. What are we going to do about it? I mean, you're familiar with Hampton Roads. I think people in our area are very attuned to these kind of issues, maybe more than in other areas of the country. Um, but I would certainly say that I hear on people's mind that when they hear that the budget is seeking to shrink the size of the Navy at a time when there is really an imminent need to and continue to grow the Navy's capability, capacity, readiness, if you want to use the terms that the, the CNO is using most, more recently, so they're just very concerned um, that it seems like that's going in the wrong direction at a very critical time. All right. Um, Tim, you been waiting for this. Your thoughts? When she went into that explanation about what campaigning is, the fact that it's not even a word, you know, I looked it up, I'm looking in the dictionary right now, you know, you've got a, the noun, the campaign, you can campaign, but, um, but she talks about the fact that they've got campaigning matched up with some kind of, the, the, I forgot the other, the other term she was using, but she says this is a second step in the interim um, um, strategy by the current administration is, is campaigning. She went, what, the, what the hell does that even mean? And so I, I just, I just, I found that whole thing to be rather hysterical and, and really, you, you know, it, it, you know, using terms like, like campaigning that have unclear definitions when yeah. you're, when you're supposedly integrated deterrence is your main focus and then you're campaigning it's it's not it's it's not a good way to be running. The but we defense. got a, we got one of our little pamphlets that that were born from uh, FMM FMM one FMF one that says campaign right. too, and uh, and of course I don't remember it because I didn't read it. <laughs> I thought I'll never get you know to what? this level. I didn't read it. Word, I didn't read, read it either. Maybe we should send it to her. The um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hey, we've got a we've got a book on campaigning. I um. <laughs> I thought her little soliloquy about deterring China means you have to have credible forces. They've got to yep. be forward deployed in the region, right? And then she said, and there's got to be a trigger point. Somebody's going somebody's mm -hmm. to get in a boat and launch from mainland. Yeah. What, she said, what, 121 100, miles. 121 miles. miles. And she said, so what's the trigger point? Right? Mm -hmm. and, and she said, and there's a question of authority. You know, you just heard her say there's a question of authority. Right. Exactly. Right. So and, and who would who would bestow on the president that authority? Well, it's not in the War Powers Act. The War Powers Act says you can you can defend yourself. It doesn't say you can initiate. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, military operations. They had that problem in Korea in the in what, 94, 95. Something something with the, that stimulated Clinton to give him all the stuff to build the nuclear thing. I remember we were on we were on Okinawa and we were the the, the flyaway division and we were gone. I mean it was we're going heading towards uh heading towards the airport and I think it was General Luck at the time, and and somehow they they squashed that. But we were I think hours away from departing Okinawa with fucking ammo 
Although our four being smart didn't break out the end until the absolute last second because he knew. He's like, no fucking way we're breaking this out. Yeah, because it's a nightmare to put it away. Oh, yeah. He goes, no fucking You don't want to be, be, be around for but that. But there was something that stimulated that, and he got pushed back. I mean, it, was, it was Clinton that interjected himself, goes, oh, fuck no. Nobody's going anywhere. But again, I, so, I don't, I don't so, I mean, so you're, you're listening to this, and, and yeah. honestly, you know, so it's, and, and this is another installment piece of it. Like, why don't we hear more of this discussion? <laughs> like, yeah. like, why aren't we talking in detail about these issues and talking them through? Because so maybe, and her point is this, so maybe strategic ambiguity needs to go away as a policy. Yes, it does. I agree with her. Yeah. Right? Obviously. And there needs to be a trigger point, and Congress needs to be brought into this earlier. Otherwise, the whole strategy... Right. Your whole strategy is not backed up by the authorities that you need in a democracy to even execute the motherfucker. You know what, though? <laughs> sitting I think there the listening whole... to it going, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. But I don't, these, I don't think the Taiwan thing, the Taiwan thing is a huge problem. It has been for a long time. But I think that is an offshoot of the Obama administration. Obama said there's a red line in Syria. If you use chemicals, we're going to it's a red line and we will retaliate. They did, and he backed down. He decided not to. So strategic ambiguities, if, he, if you were to say, if you cross this line of lobster traps, you know, a mile and a half off of uh, the Chinese coast, then you're, you're at war with the United States. He didn't want to have to, you know, back that up. And I think that's what strategic ambiguity, yeah, I could be totally wrong, but I think that's what it comes from. And so you, you, you kind of say, yeah, we might do something, we might not. But the Japanese premier recently said, yeah, "You got to do away with do away with strategic." And it, he's the guy who will probably suffer the first one besides the Taiwanese. You know, right? right. <laughs> no, it's been interesting. You know, former Prime Minister Abe, he's been adamant. You know, the Japanese have to begin to fund their defense, and and this whole idea of strategic ambiguity needs to be a thing of the past. And 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 again, and he said to include hosting. American nuclear weapons on you know mainland Japan, which is heresy, right? And you're mm -hmm. and you're, th you're thinking, am I actually hearing this shit? Uh, and so yeah. it's interesting. Uh, yeah. A final thought on all three of those segments, Jeffrey. Well, um, they're very interesting, and it's uh, and I'll tell you, I, what, what really leaps out to you what you said. The fact that there's not more of it and we don't hear about more of it you know we hear stupid shit right you now we hear you know we hear about uh you know fucking uh this guy slapping that guy in the award ceremonies and shit like that it's just cl clocks up everything people talk about stupid things you know you especially the news programs you watch the news to get the news but you don't get the news you get some you get claptrap a lot of times and so this is real shit and if it wasn't for the fact that you're paying attention like, to the, uh, the the thing that you, that you play the, about the uh, force design thing where she's asking pointed questions. You would never know. Are we going to sit there and be glued to C-SPAN? I wonder if it's even on C-SPAN as much as it should be. So, you know what I'm saying? So it's, that's right. the thing that leaps out of me. Right. You know, we're being, you're being denied knowledge just because it's not sexy in a, in a, um, right. in a click, in a click manner, you know, for clicks. And important and, and important stuff too. I mean, this is not right. this is not you know uh, marginal conversation. This is the core of 
yeah, if this happens and we say this is the pacing threat and right. this is the level of intellectual scrutiny that we see on on a regular basis, which is not so much. Uh, yeah. Timmy, final thought on, on this? Yeah, I, I think her discussion on what a deterrence for for stopping anybody thinking about invading Taiwan, what that looks like is incredibly important. It was it was beautifully well argued. And 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 I don't like I don't know for a fact why she's not getting more traction. But boy, wouldn't it be nice to I would think that you could get a bipartisan consensus of young Congress people together that are interested in our national defense and start using that as a way to calm down this political uh, divisiveness that I mentioned earlier. But yeah, I don't not, know that anybody's not, gonna, that's going to happen because I'd like to that, see her right. in that Congress for a long time. I, I really that, would. She well, is again, up, have you, do you think – here's a question for you. Do you think anybody's going to have a hearing on forced design and all that's been written and said about it? I, no, I mean, I hate to I say no. that, but I don't think so. And I no, think I that think like, I don't think it's that important in DC. And I think a lot of the reasons we don't hear this shit is because of Pelosi and uh, what's the other guy um, in California, the Republican? Shift. No. Mac- no McCarthy. Republican. McCarthy. Oh, McCarthy. Yeah. They decide what we're going to hear. They decide what's going to be, what's going to go to committee and what's going to be, uh, you know. And I don't trust them, either of them. You know? Yeah, I, I don't. I, think I will tell you have... what we, the things about this about these two, and these are three pieces. The whole thing's about thirty eight minutes long, and the link is in in the post. I, I, I watch it. It's, it's it's every bit of it is worth your time, um, other than the constant Naval Academy references. But again, we we, we love Ward. <laughs> yeah, where's Will? We, we, we love Ward. Um, the disconnect between the shipbuilding stuff is stunning to listen to, you know? Um, and then the disconnect between seem, seemingly Indo-PACOM and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, right? Here's the pacing threat. Here's what we're doing. Yet nowhere does it translate into uh, we're going to have less ships, right? And the, the budget isn't tilted to the Navy. Um, and so I that and then the nuanced discussion about authority um, relative to Taiwan and the unfolding of that event is also uh, riveting stuff, and but it, it's um, it's unsettling because are we that fucked up? You know, it doesn't seem like the Navy can do anything right. I and and again, I just um, the late this afternoon saw a G, a GAO study that said the Navy's estimates on what it's going to take to refurbish their dry dock capability. Here in the United States, this is a quote, is wildly inaccurate. Wildly inaccurate. The GAO's characterization of the United States Navy, they haven't adjusted for inflation. They haven't adjusted for this. I mean, you're reading it going, are you shitting me? So it's it's pretty depressing. (laughs) It's pretty depressing. So we'll see what comes out of it. What are you reading, Timmy? Tim. Sorry, I muted myself. Aren't I great? No, I'm reading a book called Unmasked, the uh, the global failure of um, the global failure of COVID mask mandates. And it's written by a public health guy and uh, who was uh, who's taken it from the very beginning of what pre pandemic was the advice, what happened, what why it changed, 
why this wasn't effective. And I'm just reading that to get my 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 ammo straight. I I was it's one of those issues which I was annoyed with from the very start. So I'm kind of enjoying reading something that that verifies my narrow biased view on the matter. <laughs> Jeffrey, what do you read? I'm not really reading anything except my old advisor uh, uh, classes I did because I got to change the whole thing because the Marine Corps is finally starting to say that if we're going to have this new force design, uh, engagement with partner forces is a skill that Marines are going to need. So we got a lot more work, which is why I'm having problems sometimes making it to our podcast. But also I've been, I'm, I'm crafting a whole new, probably two or three classes on, uh, on this thing as it stands now, particularly in the paycom area. So, you know, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of computer work. I'm, I'm, I know what to, I know how to do it. I'm doing it. I've done it before. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's kind of all I'm doing in, in regards to reading and stuff right now. I'm reading a book called the obstacle is the way the ancient art of turning adversity into advantage, um, written by a guy named Ryan holiday. He actually uses the word unfuck in the book. And yeah, exactly. Scientific term. Exactly. Yeah, the Daily Stoic guy. And uh, and I'll just, this is kind of an interesting observation. Um, So, you know, I've been doing this into the fourth year. And what do you think the, the, the single most significant determinant, whether somebody can do this, or not is Jeffrey what do you think um, do what well employ the things that I teach relative to living not only a good life but great life after you go through really difficult shit what do you think the single most important thing is in the after they go through my class what do you think the, the thing the single most important thing you have to have if you're going to be successful I guess uh, honest self-appraisal self-discipline yeah, right. will, will you fucking do it? And if you understand that you're going to live with this stuff for the rest of your life, right? You have to do it for the rest of your life, right? I mean, I, I go back to hearing Timmy's uncle, you know, I thought it was a oral typo when he said, I did 100 Keikos, over 100 Keikos uh, in 24 months as a recruiter in upstate New York. And, he, and then he started to say something else. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you just say over 100? And he said, yeah. And I'm like, I know most of my friends would run from, we would run from doing one. And and my friends mm-hmm. are all brave guys, but that's not over 100. And he said, I called the monitor and said, um, I can't do this anymore. You've got to get me out of here. And he said, the only place I'll, I, I can send you is to Vietnam. And he said, that's fine. I'll go. <laughs> Imagine that. I, I'd rather be fighting <laughs> and ducking than I would continuing to do these kind of uh, casualty assistant notifications. So, again, it, it's, it's interesting. The role of self-discipline in living you know, a, a great life after life rolls on you. And in the last week, I've read all these different articles that have come out and talked about young people and and mental health and anxiety and depression. When you educate them the way we do, when you parent them the way we do, and you make them soft and, and they get raised by, by being told that your feelings are the, are, are the most important things in the world, 
and then they roll out into the real world and start getting their asses kicked, what the fuck do you expect is going to happen? Right. Right? And then in terms of do they have the self-discipline to do this shit on a daily basis, you know what the answer is? Not only no, but fuck no. And we wonder why, you know, we, we have the numbers that we have um, and whatnot. So um, the case for self, um, self-discipline. If you want to live a good life, and life is going to get you at some point, at some point life's going to clip you, and then do you, you know, do you have the self-discipline to read the Daily Stoke? I, you know, there was just a thing last week that said this: if you want to have a great day, go do something good for somebody. It was like a, not even a half a page; it was a quarter page entry for the day to read, and and it's and it's hooked up to the calendar. Do you have the discipline to read that every day? to put your mind in a good place, to live the kind of life you want to live, or are you going to crawl in a bottle, say, woe is me, and, and wind up with a, with a gun in your mouth? And so, but again, I, I think it's interesting that uh, in my, it is my belief that self-discipline is the single most important quality and skill that you need to learn because nobody, none of us have it organically um, in order to, to live great. And uh, so just interesting stuff. But uh Thank you very much, boys. I appreciate your time tonight. No worries. Great day. All right, Jeffrey. Good luck with all your uh, all your book work. (laughs) I'll try. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. On a Friday, the thirteenth. That'll do it. Thanks for listening. Um, yeah, I'll tell you what, the, um, the article about Russia, I thought was very interesting when you go to the website, um, the version on the website's a little bit more, the audio version's a little bit more condensed because they want you to read, don't you know? Because there's all the links in the written version, right? Advertisements, links, etc. Right. So... Yeah, but I think you'll find the insights. You know, I I, I I thought it was a fascinating discussion. And again, just be mindful that it was written on March 11th, so two months ago, over two months ago. Yeah, and then, you know, I guess what strikes me about the discussion about Representative Luria with that Representative Luria has is. Um, I've yet to see an elected member of Congress who is drilled into Force Design 2030, given everything that's been written. If, if you can imagine being an elected official, would you not want to have a hearing? And as is the custom on, in, I think, the Festivus holiday, an airing of the grievances? And then ask hard questions, take the footnotes, and decide for yourself. Would you like to hear from the other combatant commanders if the Marine Corps losing all its tanks, much of its tubed artillery, is that something that is going to be useful to you and hear it from the combatant commanders themselves? Because they're supposed to be the people that are driving demand. And so, I mean, I think these are the kind of conversations that it, going to take 
the nation requires to get to a better place. And let me just tell you, the Navy is a shit show, an absolute shit show. Retiring vessels, you know, that haven't been in the inventory for half of their lifetime. Crazy shit. That's just money flushed down the toilet. You know, the, the article I alluded to dur- during the podcast. The General Accounting Office testified, I believe, on Wednesday. And listen to the way they characterize it. These are accounting people. The Navy's estimate of what it takes to overhaul their dry dock facilities and modernize them is wildly inaccurate. What the fuck, man? And, and, and let me tell you, and if you don't scare the shit out of them, with they're going to haul me in public and they're going to rake me over the coals with this shit and humiliate me, then that is the, that is the truth serum in all of it. But I, again, I don't see too much of it being done. And again, how she gets on my radar, I don't know Representative Luria from shit, right? That's how she gets on my radar because she asks, you know, questions that are informed and she's looking for footnotes. Who is this human being? So anyway, uh, dare I say the Department of Defense needs more scrutiny like that. And then, I mean, unbelievably amazing, her linking um, in the whole scenario of Taiwan, right? Deterrence by denial. Well, you have to be forward deployed. You have to have the capable forces, and then you have to they have to be ready to shoot. Well, legally, we can't do that. To interdict a landing, to introduce forces into a region that would precipitate a fight, president can't do that. American forces can't retain the right to protect themselves. Yes. So, anyway, and then. The fact that that posture would be linked to strategic ambiguity that would then be linked to a strategy, and you see that the pieces don't exactly line up. Hmm. That's a conversation maybe we might want to have. Hmm. Yeah, so good on her. Anyway, have a great weekend. I hope you survive Friday the 13th for those of you who believe in that shit. Um, if you do, just stay inside. Maybe it'll pass over you. Yeah, there you go. A unique concept, Passover. Um, so have a great weekend. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. We are collectively out.